Hey there, I'm Courtney Chuang, and welcome to Inside Intercom. Companies, us included, are constantly on the hunt for new ways to drive revenue. So it's no surprise that one of the key levers as you go from startup to scale up is sales. How quickly you're able to accelerate growth depends on your ability to build a nimble sales organization and develop a strong sales strategy. But that's easier said than done, which is why our newest book, Intercom on Sales, dives into the many lessons we've learned about how selling works at scale, covering everything from hiring tactics to the needs of modern buyers to fundamental processes for forecasting and managing deals. We aren't the first to learn these lessons. In fact, many of our insights are drawn from past conversations with leading sales experts. In today's episode, we're featuring some of our favorite advice from those chats. You'll hear from sales trainer and author John Barrows on hiring sales talent, Pipedrive's SVP of sales, Tara Bryant, on building a solid sales framework and moving up market, Stripe's head of North America revenue and growth, Jean DeWitt, on driving growth through customer expansion, and last but not least, our head of sales ops, Jeff Serlin, and our director of demand generation, Brian Cotlier, discuss how sales and marketing should work together to build a single revenue plan. To keep up with the latest conversations we have with top sales leaders, be sure to subscribe to our podcast and your player of choice. Let's head into the studio. For the thousands of leads who visit your website every day, their first meaningful interaction with your business will likely be a conversation with a salesperson. So hiring the right salespeople is key to ensuring the ideal buying experience. But when you're growing quickly, hiring can become a mad dash to get bodies on the floor. A while back, our SVP of sales, LB Harvey, spoke with sales trainer John Barrows on the key ingredients that sales leaders can't compromise on when it comes to hiring. Let's listen in. You mentioned, you know, hiring in those first couple of sales folks. You kind of mentioned the experience level you look for. What are some of the most intangible elements or characteristics that you look for in top sales folks? Yeah, I'll tell you the the passion. Uh, passion and work ethic. Those are two things you cannot train. The number one characteristic I look for, and I learned this from Jack Welsh. So I, I, um, I worked for Jack Welsh, the GE Jack Welsh for a couple months to get his online MBA program off the ground. And when I had started my first company way back in the day, you know, Jack came to Boston to do one of his conferences and his conferences, the way he does it, he's just a pure Q&A, right? So there's about a thousand people in this seminar that he was doing and, and you know, it was just Q&A. So I stood up and I asked him and, and at the time, my company, we were 50 employees and I was kind of frustrated because I stood up and I said, Jack, look, you talk a lot about passion and all this other stuff. And, you know, I got a question for you because when we were five people starting this company, like we were all super passionate, right? And it was like, all right, everybody's on the same page. And, you know, 20 people, yep, everybody's still crushing it and super passionate. You know, 30, 40, and, you know, and I got, we kind of got to 50 people. And I said, you know, now at around like the 51st person that we're bringing in, it just doesn't seem that they have the same passion that, that we do for the business. And I said, so how do you instill, and this was my question, and I was, you know, 25 years old when I asked this. I said, you know, how do you instill your passion on somebody else? And in front of a thousand people, you know, he told me I basically was an idiot. He was like, no, he's like, you can't do that. He's like, you're looking at it all wrong. He goes, you can't instill your passion on somebody else. You have to hire passion. And that right there flipped my, my, my hiring persona upside down. Because now instead of hiring for skills, because I can teach skill, I can teach technique, I can, te- I can teach product knowledge, I can teach all that stuff to somebody who's willing to learn. But I can't teach drive, I can't teach passion, I can't teach you know, grit. 
you know, sales is a brutal profession. You literally get told no 99 times and you have to keep coming back asking for more so you can get that one that says yes in the hundred. And if you don't have somebody that has that drive and that passion for, for what you do, which is why, you know, for instance, one of my favorite interview questions is what are you passionate about? And it's not because, by the way, I don't care what you're passionate about. It's just I care how you describe what you're passionate about. For instance, you know, if I asked you that question, I said, what are you passionate about? You're like, oh, I really like customers and I really want to do right by them and, you know, make sure our product's a good fit and whatever. Or you say, holy crap, Tom, like, did you see what happened on Thursday night with the Patriots? Like, they got absolutely smoked. I'm rip-roaring pissed off, but I think it's a good thing because, you know what, they needed to get knocked down a notch here. And I still think they're going to go 17-1 and one this year and smoke it and put six on the ring and Brady's going to get out of here. Like, if you start, I don't care if football had nothing to do with what you and I were talking about. If you described it in a passionate way, that means you have some sort of fire in you. And now my job as a leader is to try to take that passion and, and connect it to my business so that you could bring a fraction of that to the table when you come work for me. So, you know, that, and then the, the last one is obviously coachability. Like you need somebody who is coachable. If you're hiring, you know, a leader should still be coachable, but if you're hiring somebody who's, who you're, you know, maybe a little bit lower on the totem pole than a VP or something like that, you got to have somebody who's open and willing and wants feedback. I think a lot of people are a little bit too sensitive these days. And, you know, when they get feedback, they clam up and they're like, oh, you know, and get really sensitive about it. I, you know, you got to have somebody with a thick skin and who wants feedback uh, so that they can get better. There's often a temptation for sales leaders to think that hiring is the answer to beating ever increasing sales targets. But Tara Bryant, SVP of sales at Pipedrive, thinks this is a mistake if you don't have the right processes, systems and metrics in place first. These are crucial to enabling your team to run as efficiently as possible. At Saster this year, I spoke to her about how she approached scaling the sales team at Pipedrive. You've sort of talked about the need for alignment, but there's a temptation often just to keep doing more. So like hiring more salespeople, (laughs) adding more tools. And so what is your approach to figuring out like when do you add more salespeople, when do you add more tools? tools. Yeah, it's actually, it's funny you asked me that. So when I started, uh, when I started, they had big growth plans as far as headcount and, but maybe a little bit looser on processes and, you know, cadences and things like that, like that framework I was Mm -hmm. talking about. And so, you know, coming in in Q4 in a company is always a bit of a challenge because obviously you're ending the year and, and the quarter, but you're also trying to plan for the next year and you don't really know enough information. So one of the things that I definitely took a, just took a step back and said, this is a really aggressive hiring plan for 2019. We're not going to hire anybody. We've got a great staff right now. And I think a lot of salespeople actually make this mistake where they look at the plan and they're like, okay, I've got to get to X. So I'm just going to hire more people. And there's, you know, that, that's how you make your quota. And I actually don't believe that. I, I actually will always try to hold back on the hiring plans because unless you've really got the processes in place, I'm a big process and data person. So unless you've got the process in place and you've got a really good framework, you need to really optimize what we have. We've got a great sales force. I mean, these people love our customers. They really want to make sure that they understand the tool. And so I think we've got just things that we can fix first before we look at really scaling it. And so that's that's the number one thing that we've done. So I, again, we had aggressive headcount to see the growth. And we put together a plan where we can actually see maybe even a little bit more growth with the same people. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's what we did. Look, if, if in H2, it, it looks like, hey, 
if we put if we put some gas on this, if we did hire more people, then we can do it. And I'm fine to do that. But we have to make sure that we've got this at least dialed down. You know, I mean, it's a journey. All of these companies, we're all on a journey. It's not just like one destination. So as we're going, we're always going to fine tune these processes. But again, making sure we're optimizing what we have and we're just not there yet. So I don't really want to grow headcount yet. If you had $1 to spend on your startup's growth, should you spend it on acquiring a new customer or expanding an existing one? In a recent ProfitWell study of a few thousand SaaS executives, 7 out of 10 of them said if they had to focus on one piece of their business, it would be net new customer growth. But Gene DeWitt, head of North America Revenue and Growth at Stripe, argues you're hampering your own success if you don't make room in your sales strategy to focus on growing existing customers. What does your structure look like for the expansion side of your business? Because you mentioned that you now do have a distinct Mm -hmm. account manager org. Yeah. We've gone through a number of iterations on this one too. So today, it, it, it depends on segment. So you have different buying behaviors. So within the startup segment, again, so core to what Stripe does. So we actually have integrated the startup segment. So we have both new biz and existing biz under the same leader. Separate people focusing on newer existing, but single leader so that we have a really integrated strategy for that segment. So in that one, the role is focused both on, you know, upsell as well as retention and customer success activities. And we basically have been very focused on what we think are most likely to be the breakout startups of the future, over-investing in them before they're, you know, technically large enough, spending enough money to merit that, to also just help them if they get the best practices from us, does that make them more likely to become a Series B, Series C company because we, you know, helped facilitate that. So that's been one aspect. And then also a set of, you know, targeted campaigns where we sort of see behavior within an account and realize that they might benefit from either an optimization or a new product. In our our growth, which you can sort of think of as like series B through D companies segment, we've experimented with different models of folks doing just customer success and more commercial activities. And I think are likely to move to a model where those are actually integrated. We actually think that really aligns well with one of the things that's great about Stripe's commercial model is, is we make money when the customer makes money. So having those together is sort of, I think, works effectively. And then in our largest accounts, you know, the, the public companies, the enterprise ones, we're, we're figuring out exactly the right model there. You're doing super detailed payment optimization work with them. You know, if they're spending, they're out doing billions in payments, basis points matter. So we do a lot of detailed analyses on that front that are more customer success oriented. If you're doing a renewal, it's a very complicated process. That can be a six-month negotiation. So having someone who's expert in that um, is useful. You know, and then as we're selling products like Stripe Billing, you know, they might have homegrown or another subscription product in there, and that can be a complicated sale in and of itself. So what we're trying to do is like ensure that roles are focused enough that you can be expert, but not create such specialized roles that you wind up with 10 people in an account, which isn't a great customer experience and isn't very efficient. So looking towards the future, I think we've talked a lot about how you've evolved the team at Stripe today, but Stripe is, I think, now valued at something like $22.5 billion. And when you're growing that rapidly, I imagine that what worked really well one year or even one month ago can start to get strained with that growth. So what are the inputs that you're looking at? Like, what are the indicators that it's time to evolve the team? 
Yeah. The team, one of the things like I really value about Stripe is it's a very open and transparent company that really expects leadership from everywhere within a company. And so we really engage the teams very heavily in helping us actually understand that. So I would say like half of the evolutions we've done have been, I think, sort of management-driven more about kind of, hey, I'm seeing a certain pattern here. Let's do a fair amount of analysis and understand the market opportunity and our position within it and then, you know, choose to to point the team in a certain direction. Example of that would be we're very focused right now on working with SaaS platforms. So Shopify, Squarespace, right? Those are SaaS companies, but e-commerce is a core part of what they do. So they work closely with Stripe. And so we're purposefully having more emphasis on that because it's an important segment of the market for us to pursue. In other cases, it's sort of been just seeing where either people aren't getting to the level of depth you want them to and realizing, wow, we have all these insanely smart people, but they're kind of not getting to depth. Clearly, there's too much breadth here, right? Or we've done different things too where we've checked in on like, surveyed sort of like where are people spending time sometimes and when you realize like one of the big changes we did was originally account executives were in charge of deploying their accounts as well sort of crazy when your your products an API but so that when it got to the point where they were spending over a third of their time deploying accounts you were sort of like wait a minute that's not how we're going to grow as fast as possible time for a new role but yeah where I would say we're sort of on a pace where like there's been a major evolution sort of about every 12 months and typically about six months in, we're starting, we call it a dress rehearsal. (laughs) We start doing a dress rehearsal. So we have like an inkling that we think we want to make this change and we start experimenting and sort of putting some lightweight structures in place that would migrate us towards where we think we need to evolve. That way, when you finally announce, hey, we're moving segment lines or we're making this change, people are kind of like, oh, well, duh, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode one is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt or die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right? And see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. One way to assess the health of your sales strategy is to look at the relationship between your sales and marketing teams. 
because while sales and marketing tactics can vary, to ultimately succeed, teams need to be aligned around one plan, a revenue plan. If ownership isn't shared, finger-pointing creeps in. In this episode, our head of sales ops, Jeff Serlin, and our director of demand gen, Brian Cotlier, talk about their experience building alignment between sales and marketing. You've done sales operations and operations generally in businesses across the whole spectrum of scale. As companies mature, how do you see the relationship between sales and marketing changing and the relationship between the operations teams changing as, as they grow and become more complex? Yeah, good question. I think that, as you mentioned, when you start off, it's first, let's validate that people are willing to give us some money for this. And you're probably doing that before you think of the tactics that you mentioned or the basket of tactics, probably before you even came up with the strategy of kind of who you want to sell to, what size and what type of, of companies. I think in the early days, it's just kind of go get that number, go acquire customers, go figure out why they're buying and then go get some more of them. I don't know that you need a lot of sales operations or even a big sales team, as you mentioned. I think you just need enough bodies to handle the leads and people that have this overwhelming mindset of, you know, um, um, optimistic, I guess is a good word of it's something new, but we see some early people consuming it. So we're going to go sell more. I think that as you start getting to multiple offices or multiple geos or multiple segments, um, smaller companies, larger companies, or even a sales manager or two is when you need to start thinking about placing operations in place. And I think one of the things that happens when a marketing team starts to get bigger and a sales team starts to get bigger is unfortunately marketing and sales starts to, I think, diverge, sit at different places of the building um, go through different processes of figuring out what they need to do. And I think the role of both of our operations teams is to pull them tighter when it was maybe five or six people sitting all together earlier um, at the time. So as they mature or as a company matures, both of those organizations are going to mature. And I think without that in between, that glue or the stitching of what really operations is, what my team does and what yours does to keep them together into one continuous supply chain, that you start to see marketing targeting a segment and sales recruiting to fill sales capacity that has emotion that isn't consistent with that segment. And then bad things happen. You're either spending money on, on pipeline that isn't getting converted or sales is converting pipeline that you don't or otherwise would not want to convert and you have those mismatches. So I think the operations needs to get more sophisticated. It needs to get more operationally. I don't know if that's a word, but you need to start documenting things. You need to start aligning your processes. You need to start having more structure and governance in how you do everything. And I think if you just keep structure, governance, alignment, staying on the same page, same KPIs, uh, constant communication that you can typically grow your sales and marketing team together in the right sort of way as the company scales. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I really like the idea kind of to, to maybe pull out an idea from there, it seems like you sort of get that alignment and that sense of being one team sort of for free when you're small. And it seems almost like what you're saying is as the companies get bigger and more complicated, the role of operations is to preserve that sort of oneness and sort of single team mentality and way of working? 100%. I think if you hire a dedicated events person, we know um, how challenging it is to manage the logistics of setting up and executing a great event. And there's a, a core skill set that not a ton of people have. And you're going to hire someone who's optimizing that, but they might not be 
fully aware of how you take that and you do the pre-marketing or you gather the leads or you get them into nurture tracks or you pass them over to sales to truly build pipeline off of it. And that's okay because the role is to, you know, put together some really, really great events. And I think that's where the marketing ops team working with the sales ops team can help that specific tactic that you're investing in get closer and pull it back into this concept of one team while allowing those other resources who might not even ever think of sales other than who's going to staff the booth, you know, to do what they do best. Makes sense. So back to you. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, clearly sales and marketing is, is, has always been, I think you and I would believe, had to be very close and needs to be close. From your perspective, what does a successful partnership look like back to sales and how should sales view that as well with respect to being good partners to marketing? Sure. I totally agree. I really would echo something you mentioned a bit a little while ago, which is I think what's really helpful is when both parties kind of think of it as a supply chain and that we're all we're manufacturing the same thing on behalf of our our employer, which is uh, revenue for the business. And so I think kind of starting there with that grounding, I think the foundation of successful partnership is understanding that. And that sounds sort of I don't know, routine or boring to say, but it's, it's not always the case. Some sales organizations, they're just in a logo acquisition game. They're not actually trying to make money for their business because that's the way that their accomplishments set up or that's what their leadership is driving. And I would actually say more commonly, the marketing team might think, oh, my job is building brand. And then my question, again, being the revenue and operations person is, to what end? We don't sell our brand. We sell stuff. And uh, the brand's supposed to help us sell stuff. Um, but a lot of marketing organizations be like, my job is build the brand. My job is to have wonderful facilities for our employees to work in. And that's true. That's part of your job. But always have to ask that follow-up question is to what end? I think once you're there, once you have that, uh, that sort of alignment of what is the end outcome that marketing and sales are trying to get at together, then I think you get into the kind of the fun part of the partnership, which is, of course, a lot of things that you and I do together, which is, yeah, giving each other a hard time about our respective contributions to the supply chain, but getting aligned on kind of to what you shared earlier, shared earlier, like, okay, how are we going to get there? What's the efficient way for our business mutually to get to the revenue outcome we want? Are we staffed correctly? Do we have the right capacity? Can I actually drive the sort of leads that you need in the timeline that you need it? And that's kind of where the the fun and in fact, actually the art, I would say of our roles comes in because there's not a playbook that you can just execute in my experience. I wish there were. And there's very rarely an obvious answer. Oh, hire 10 reps and buy some Facebook ads and the problem goes away. Like, that has never worked for me. I don't know anyone that's ever worked for it. I don't expect it ever will. So I think that that's kind of that just getting really aligned in how we work and how we kind of forecast and are trying to shape the future is key. My experience working with sales, I think because of that mentality has been good. At times it's been, frankly, very, very, very bad though. And I think it always, the foundation of where it goes wrong is when there's a misalignment of expectations of what the supply chain is trying to make when there's a misalignment of expectations of the plan that we should have co-developed but often did not to get there. And then lastly, I do think that sometimes there can be um, a lack of just understanding and education that both jobs are hard. You can both know you're supposed to be making money. You can both agree on a plan. But it's always easy. My, uh, I'll, I'll be a little folksy for a minute. My uncle has this saying he always uses, which is never take out the trash when no one's looking because no one appreciates how hard everyone else's job is if they don't see it or appreciate it or feel it. And so I think that that's just like, you kind of have to have empathy for the party on the other side. Driving leads of quality at any sort of scale, it's super hard and super expensive and it takes time. Closing leads of any quality at any scale on a timeline and in a predictable way is super hard. And I think when you see, when you start to see the fissures between the departments emerge is when people forget that. 
sales leaders need to be constantly looking out for their next million-dollar opportunity. For many, that means considering whether it's time to move up market. But the shift from serving smaller businesses to winning larger customers is a big one, and it represents a significant risk. Pipedrive's Tara Bryant argues it's not just about closing the deal. The best sales leaders work with their product counterparts to ensure that they jointly build a product that serves the needs of larger customers long-term. One of the things that I'm very curious about when you've reached the stage of growth you're at is how do you balance this pursuit of new customer acquisition with expansion revenue? So I think a lot of companies, they struggle with investing in their current customers versus just trying to ramp up new logo acquisition. How are you thinking about that? So that is always a big question that people have. I would say the number one thing is don't have the same reps going after net new sales and expansion. It doesn't work. The reason why it doesn't work is it's much easier to grow an existing customer than it is to go convince somebody to move or to start using a new tool, right? And so what'll happen is just subconsciously, people are gonna gravitate more towards the customer base and work on that versus net new. So the number one thing I would say is don't ever have them be the same person or the same team. And I actually think it's a different DNA that I think people are either, you know, hunters or, or farmers. So I do think it's really important as you start to grow that you have to look at your install base and you have to make sure that are we service them correctly, not only just to upsell them, of course we want more revenue, but really just to make sure like, are they happy? You know, do they do they feel like they're starting to outgrow or, you know, what's been so great about Pipedrive was we started with a very small base, you know, people who were SMB, really small customers. But as we've been around for such a long time now, our customers are now, you know, four or five, six, seven hundred seats. And so it's exciting because we've been able to grow with them. And so now we look at like, wow, we're servicing these really kind of big, uh, I would call them mid-price, mid-price customers now. And so, you know, do we start focusing on that a little bit? Do we start looking at that? And And if we weren't servicing our base so well, we wouldn't know that. Right. So I do think it's important to to manage both of them, but to look at them both very separately. Yeah. And you touched on that really interesting idea of moving up market. I think it's a temptation for a lot of startups <laughs> where suddenly they see a big company come in and they're like, wow, that could be a really fast way to join this rocket ship. Yeah. But sometimes it's a band-aid if they aren't, as you said, really servicing their current customer base. Mm-hmm. When you're thinking about moving up market, what are the crucial inputs that you are thinking through before you say like, yes, we're going to go for enterprise? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think what it is, is we're looking at saying, first of all, do we have the right tool for them? Right? So you never want to sell something that's not the right tool for people. So I would say, could our tool support an enterprise customer? Yes, it could. That's just not the segment that we've ever been really interested in. And so as our customers have grown and we're seeing their needs that they had and we would start customizing stuff for them, now we've got a package where we can start servicing, you know, these eight, 900 employee customers. So that's fine. We still don't have a team that's actually just focused on that. They just come in pretty organically. But I think it is a market that we need to look at. I think you do have to start going up market a little bit. Like you said, a lot of companies want to do it and you do have to do it. But you want to make sure you have the right tool first, right? You don't want to go out there, sell a big customer. The worst thing you can't do is service them or it's not the right tool. I think Pipedrive, to stay true to their values of how they started this, was it was for salespeople, right? It was for salespeople to sell more and to be able to be intuitive and to help them really like the tool helps you sell. And so that's why we say it's kind of cool to see these small companies that sort of maybe two or three seats, you know, five years ago, they've got, you know, hundreds now. 
And that's because we like to think it's because we help them sell more, right? And so it's just making sure you stay true to the product and then making sure that you can really service the customers and that the product will benefit them for sure. I think that's a really powerful philosophy. The idea that if you're doing your job well, inevitably your customers will also be moving up market with you. That's right. I hope you enjoyed these conversations. These chats are only a sliver of what we've learned about sales as Intercom has scaled over the past few years. Whether it's establishing a close partnership between your sales and marketing teams or figuring out how to structure your company for growth, we hope you can find some value in the conversations we've had with these market leaders. They've certainly helped us get where we are today. There are so many more lessons to be found in Intercom on Sales, the book we released this week. Inside, you'll find a collection of insights that ranges from hiring to creating an unforgettable customer experience to knowing how to navigate rapid change smoothly. Get your copy at intercom.com books. And if you enjoy it, we'd love it if you would share it with a friend. Thanks for listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more interviews, go to intercom.com blog or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. This is Inside Intercom.